Romantics. I'm Morgan. And I'm Isabel. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you'd like to support us even more, please tell your friends or your mom. And subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite listening app. We also have a Patreon if you'd like to give us some financial support. If not, we get it. No worries. All of our content is free for all of our listeners. Thank you again for your support of Womance. Thank you so much for listening. (sighs) (laughs) I'm Morgan. I'm Isabeau. And I'm Nick. Yay! And this is Womance. This is the whole Womance. It's the team. A podcast about romance novels. About road trips. About fossilized footprints. About losing on purpose so people will like you. About caves of wonder. It's about smoking opium all afternoon and gambling. It's about improvising. Yes, and. About yes, and. It's about lying all the time. It's about throwing all your dreams away. (laughs) It's about discovering that you're not actually just good at one thing. You're good at all things, including (laughs) blowjobs. It's about scientific curiosity. And expanding your skill set. But most of all, it's about that first thing. Romance novels. And And ourselves. (laughs) Good one, guys. That was okay. It's really good. This week, we are returning to where it all began. Our roots, the seed, the sapling of romance. A Week to be Wicked by Tessa Dare. Woo! Isabel, do you want to provide some context? Yeah, I mean, I have loved this book for many years. I've read the entire Spindle Cove series. And when Morgan and I had our gestating conversations about romance and this podcast, and she made the amazing contribution of if this was going to be a podcast, we'd call it Womance. And I was like, if this is a podcast, we should start with A Week to be Wicked. (laughs) Because it functions as, I think, a perfect entree into romance because it has a lot of tropes because Tessa Dare is, I think, a very artful writer. So if you are ever on the precipice of being like, romance is silly, you can see a real artist at work in this text. It's also just a lot of and fun. Once again, the origin myth of romance is so different between the two of us. <laughs> I recently listened to you tell this story when we were on Shelf Love. Shelf Love, yeah. And I was like, what the, how did she get there? I remember not being able to read after completing my master's, and you recommended I pick up a romance, and you suggested A Week to Be Wicked. I read it, and then we decided to do the podcast after having quite a few cocktails at Little Bad Wolf talking about it. Yes. Remember that place? That was so fun. Little Bad Wolf? What's that? It's this place in Andersonville that at the time had just opened. And now it just closed. Yeah, probably. <laughs> like everything else. So sad. I'm just kidding. I tried to order food from somewhere in my neighborhood last night and it was incredibly depressing. Just calling places and no one answered. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, Little Bad Wolf's HEA is a little bit better. Like they're going to be able to weather the pandemic. Oh, that's good. But before it was just like one front room and the bar. But then over the course of of this podcast, Little Bad Wolf was able to buy the subway next door and then open an entire storefront and then it took over the whole... You do. It was like, you know, a little place strikes back against corporate America. And then the pandemic hit right after they expanded and put in some booths. Listen, charging people $15 a cocktail, they better be able to afford a subway. <laughs> it's going to turn back into a subway, though. Like, that's the turf war. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly 
it's, it's just going to go back and uh-huh. forth. People will walk in and be like, wow, this subway looks kind of like a trendy cocktail place mm-hmm. instead of like this trendy cocktail place looks kind of like a subway. I was picturing it as they just left it as a subway and just started serving cocktails <laughs> behind that sandwich board. Uh, <laughs> it's corporate America. R.I.P. But here we are. We're still chugging along a hundred episodes later. This is our hundredth episode, which normally we bring on our producer, Nick, to talk to us about a book on our anniversary. But we figured a hundred episodes. Let's go ahead and knock it out early if we can. And so we did. It's a big deal. It's pretty close to the anniversary. Yeah, they came really close together this time. So who wants to read the back of the book? Nick should read the back of the book. Oh, yes. Some lovely creaky dulcet tones. Plus he has a physical copy, which makes it easier. I think it's funny we're doing this book after what is unequivocally a wicked week. You know, it feels like very <laughs> apt. A wicked week versus a week to be wicked. Yeah. Oh, man. I feel like if more of those people had read romance novels that like something would have changed. I don't know, Isabel. A lot of those people probably do read romance novels. And not the dudes. The ladies were still there. I know they were. Very excited to flip off the camera in Nancy Pelosi's office. They were. I also worry that just like some of the themes in here might be reinforcing ideologies, you know, (laughs) which is also kind of a problem. No, I know. I saw the Viking guy with like the tree of life and I was like, oh no, that's a Nazi symbol now too. We don't get anything good anymore. It's like it's tree of Gondor or nothing. But now they're going to fucking take the tree of Gondor. I'm just like. They love Nordic shit because it makes them feel like they have culture. I was thinking about Return of the King in relation to Storming the Capitol because we just watched the Lord of the Rings series again. And what is so striking about that movie is how unaware Gondor is for what's coming. And it's like they live right next door. Like they can see the fire. They can see what's happening. And that's what it kind of felt like with all these Nazis storming the Capitol. It was an inevitable problem on the horizon. Anyway, so. Back of the book, A Week to be Wicked. When a devilish lord and a blue socking set off on the road to ruin, time is not on their side. Minerva Highwood, one of Spindlecove's confirmed spinsters, needs to be in Scotland. Colin Sandhurst, Lord Payne, a rake of the First Order, needs to be anywhere but Spindlecove. These unlikely partners have one week to bake an elopement, convince family and friends they're in love, outrun armed robbers, survive their worst nightmares, travel 400 miles without killing each other, all while sharing a very small carriage by day and an even smaller bed by night. What they don't have time for is their growing attraction, much less wild passion, and heaven forbid they spend precious hours bearing their hearts and souls. Suddenly, one week seems like exactly enough time to find a world of trouble. And maybe, just maybe, love. So Nick, I want to know what inspired your performance of the back of the book. What references were you pulling from? Was there any inspiration? Was that just you being you reading the back of the book? Were you thinking of? I'm not really a morning person and I'm a little nervous right now. So there's also that. Uh Uh-huh. And um, yeah, no real inspiration behind it. But we did just watch uh, Manchurian Candidate last night, the OG one. Oh. And um, what's his name? Not Frank Sinatra, the robotic dude who is the candidate. So maybe maybe a little bit of him. Maybe a little bit of that leached in. Yeah, maybe that did. That's fun. Well, what do we think? What are the disparities we see from the actual text versus the back of the book? First pass. I think the back of the book does a really good job of naming every trope. We've got enemies to lovers. We've got fake engagement. We've got road trip. We've got one bed. That was actually hitting through the highlights. Blue stocking and rake. Rake of the first order. (laughs) What does blue stocking refer to? Spinster. Okay. What's it come from, Isabel? 
I think the fact that she doesn't wear lovely, pretty stockings, that a blue stocking is now practical and wears woolen stockings rather than silk stockings. It's mean. It's like calling somebody a battle axe. I like that she's a spinster when she's, what, like 25, 23? 23. Yeah. My dad used to write on, my mom was an elementary school teacher, and he, whenever he would go into her classroom, he would write Mrs. Lott is a battle axe on her chalkboard. For many years, I thought battle axe was like a thing that you would call a woman who is like amazing, <laughs> like Elizabeth Cady Stanton. And like, I was like, yeah, battle axe. And then somebody's like, no, that's what you call a woman when you're like trying to say that she's flinty and terrible. And I was like, what? I was like, I thought we were just like telling people like what they were good at, like oratory. And they're like, no, don't call women that. And I was like, oh, that sucks. Can we take it back? Is that the new? I would rather have battle axe back than like cunt. Why not both? Why limit yourself? That's a good point. That actually reminds me so much of the heroine who I don't think is like officially a spinster at 23. I think she decided she was going to be a spinster at 23. She looked at herself and she said, I'm too unique. I'm too much like not like other girls, but also like in a really self-deprecating way and has decided to bow out and put all of her energy into getting her older sister, Diana, married. One of my friends was talking to me about her therapy session recently and her therapist told her, and this is like life-changing that taking responsibility for something is also trying to take control and I think in a lot of ways she takes on a lot of responsibility for her older sister being able to make a good match and make a love match is what makes a good match means to her and so I think she's trying to control the fact that she's not pursued and the fact that men aren't interested in her so she's kind of making herself smaller smaller in some ways but also like larger in others She does have a quick word and a real sort of capacity to cut others in public, uh, which is what she's been doing with Colin for the length of their uh, acquaintanceship. Minerva, I think, is also like, I'm so glad that you brought up not like other girls because she's not like other girls from her name forward, right? She's bespectacled. She's interested in rocks. She prefers lace up sturdy boots to slippers. She doesn't like to dance. She also has this insane name, Minerva, when her sister is Diana and her other sister, Charlotte, set apart not only as the middle child, much woe begone, but also just like when you're born into a name like Minerva, you like have to take it up or people will take it up for you in ways that like you don't get to choose. That sounds like you're over-identifying there, Isabeau. I do. As an Isabeau, I over-identify with Minerva very strongly. I did not pick up on any of that. (laughs) I was like, Minerva Rose, that's a cool name. And all of the daughters are named after different Greek goddesses. With the exception of the youngest, Charlotte. I figured that was like a Bronte nod. Oh, maybe. Of sorts. Maybe. I don't know. Could be. I like that Minerva was like a fully fledged person before she met Colin. Yeah. Like had interests, had dreams, had desires, was like actively working on stuff, stood up to what was his name? Alistair, not Crowley. Alistair Kent is the person that she's writing to. Yeah. Like has professional acquaintances. Yeah. I thought that was really nice because I would consider this like the first real romance novel that I've read because like Bear didn't really count no. as, a, as a romance novel. And it was really good, though. It was awesome. I loved it. <laughs> it was so good. Everyone should read it. And The Honeymooners felt like it was trying to do something that already existed. Ooh. But this felt like the genuine article and like a good representation of what the genre I think aspires to be. And Honeymooners felt like the made for TV version of that. 
exactly right. Made for TV is exactly right. That's very much the energy in comparison to something like A Week to Be Wicked. Yeah. And like, I wasn't expecting the book to be like put together poorly, but I was impressed by like the level of craft that went into it. Even though I've like heard you guys talk about a ton of these books, it was nice to like actually get into the meat of it and realize like how much skill and thought goes into all of it, which I think further drives home the point that like none of this is accidental, the things that are in there. Right. I think the structure of this book is so good and so captivating. And, you know, as the back of the book points out, and as Isabel pointed out, there are so many classic tropes. And when we recently read A Christmas Gone Perfectly Wrong, which one of these came first? Because they're so similar. But tropes for me were like a thing when I first started this project where, first of all, I couldn't identify them. But second of all, like this idea of like tropiness was tired, pat, kind of lazy. But as you get further into this genre specifically, right, if there were tropes in sci-fi, they feel silly and it feels like less interesting and less good. There are tropes in sci-fi. Yeah, there's tons of them. There are tropes, but like whenever you counter them in a really obvious way, as I think I'm under the influence of a video essay I watched on the coolification of sci-fi in the 70s through film. Uh... Okay. So in the 70s, right, sci-fi films started adapting, you know, books and ideas and tropes into this like grittier version, right, which was like edgy and cool and interesting and, and did a lot to like revitalize the genre for serious academic interest, right, and inquiry, as well as money and publishing, uh, mainstream publishing. Yeah, I think you're talking about a prestige factor. Exactly. And romance hasn't really had that moment yet. No, it hasn't. So... I think romance has a way of making the tropes obvious and that's furthers that kind of base pleasure of the HEA. Like you understand how it's going to work. Like you understand when you like hear that they're going to have to share just one bed, that you're going to get some like sexual tension and you're going to get payoff as well. When you hear rake versus blue stocking, you know that they're going to like push each other to become better people, right, specifically, and you know how those moves are going to be made. And so I think the comfort of the read is enhanced. The shifts are more impactful whenever you twist that trope. As opposed to like when I go into a sci-fi and I encounter a trope, like I expect it to be twisted. Or when I go into a horror book, I expect it to surprise me. I don't necessarily have that expectation going into romance. So when you read something like A Week to be Wicked by someone with a lot of craftsmanship behind her, like Tessa Dare, whenever it is surprising, it's so much more like special. I think that's interesting. I think you're right about the prestige factor. I think it's right to say that like you do have an expectation of sci-fi and horror and mystery, I think is also in this category of prestige factor where it's like, well, if there wasn't a twist, then what was it really? It was like boring or like not well thought out. I think you're right to say even after all this time, you don't have those expectations. And I think that like continues to both plague and also shore up romance in very particular ways. But like one of the things that both you and Nick have brought up is like how strong Tessa Dare is in terms of the actual sentence structure. And there's this one line about the mother who's an extremely ancillary character. She kind of looms large in Minerva's internality. But like, I want to read this one thing where Mama's gaze pierced her as a girl. Minerva had envied her mother's blue eyes. They'd seemed the color of tropical oceans and cloudless skies, but their color had faded over the years since Papa's death. Now their blue was the hue of dyed cambric worn three seasons or brittle middle-class China, the color of patience worn thin. And it's like, 
oh, I don't even need to know anything else about mom. I know that she has no patience. I know that she's like deeply affected by the death of her husband and it has to do with class and that like she is actively concerned about how her daughters are going to eat in the future. And she sees that Minerva is like constantly a thorn in her side about this. And like, that's just such a good way of describing mom without demonizing her, right? Where it like gives authority to why mom sucks. I think it's really interesting, though, framing it as like class. Yes, she is very concerned with class, but I think class in this historical context and gendered context is freighted with survival. Being able to feed your family is directly related to whether or not your daughters will be able to marry someone who can afford to keep you sheltered and fed. And she's kind of been coasting by on fumes this whole time. Isn't like Spindle Cove like a place for spinsters? (laughs) It's a place for spinsters, unmarried ladies who've gotten into trouble. Like the whole series is about like women who don't fit in into London and society either because of a scandal or um, because of other reasons. So like Spindle Cove functions as like a, a respite or a sanctuary for like ladies who can't fit in. It's also cheaper because it's in Sussex. I just like that there's like an island of misfit toys for women who can't hack it at a time when like the options for hacking it is like get married. <laughs> so it's just it's, it's just funny to me. <laughs> Well, what's really interesting is if we read like Kathleen Widowis, I think her heroines were like oftentimes the book opened and they were like 16. Yeah. And we always have this like context of, oh, back in the day, people got married really young. But during the Regency period, the average marriage age of women in France was 27. And so this idea of marrying young, this is a big question, but like history isn't really, we know, like an accounting of facts. It's a story we tell ourselves about the past. And I think this idea of women being really young when they get married way back then is serving two functions, which is, first of all, to reinforce the idea that young women are the most valuable kind of women, right, as far as like under the patriarchy. But secondly, to make us think that we've come far when we really haven't come as far as, you know, that lie would have us believe, right? You might say like, well, at least I'm not expected to get married at 16 and then considered on the shelf at 20. 23, but that's not really what was happening back then. The Victorians made up all sorts of shit about the medieval period in order to make themselves seem more progressive. That was just like flattening of allegory in art from the period. And it was intentional. And they t- we have historical record of them saying like, oh, I know we like said like, this imagery is allegorical, but I mean, was it? And like, obviously we've come really far, you know, this kind of negotiation. And so stuff like this, it is a trope in a historical romance that, you know, you're 23 and you're on the shelf. And that's one of those ways that romance does serve the patriarchy. A hundred percent. And I think the work that that's doing is, like you said, like reinforcing things that we should maybe be smarter about. And like the fetishization of like, not only is the fantasy like you're going to get married to someone that you love who can pleasure you in ways that you didn't know possible. But also you're going to be rich and you're going to have people that wait on you and you're going to be pulled out of this class thing. And kind of going back to what you were saying about the mom, like wanting to just like feed and house her daughters. Like it's not just making sure that they have shelter and are fed, but like quality shelter and good food and social standing. And it's that difference between like survival and like 
prospering in a way that there's always someone below you that I think we should get rid of. That's a really good point. And I think so I'm thinking about Emma, right? And the farmer, Travis, who Emma deems unworthy of her friend because she says like, well, she is an orphan, so she might be of great quality. So we have to like treat her marriage as if she needs to be at her same social status or higher, right? But in the book, Emma, it's entirely about social class and social status. And it has nothing to do with like quality of life because the farmer actually has a really comfortable life. But there is this thing in historical romance that's written in our contemporaneous period where there is, I think, an intentional freighting of class with like, if you were lower than a duke, then your existence was absolutely miserable or lower than a baron, probably, right? Your existence was small and empty. Maybe you didn't have as much free time, right, in the historical record. But I don't think it was as bad. I think it has to do with precarity. And I think you're right to bring up the Emma example, but I think the example that this book is pulling from is much more like Pride and Prejudice, right? Where it's like, somebody is going to inherit this title. Like, we're already sort of living on the fringes. And if you don't get married, I, your mother, won't eat, but also potentially your sisters won't because we'll be cast out and not have a life, right? Like, there's this precarity that women alone without a brother or a father or a caretaker creature have. Which makes it more like Sense and Sensibility or Pride and Prejudice than Emma, because this idea that like this society, it's extremely patriarchal. You have no agency without a man vouching for you or protecting you. And this book trades heavily on that and like I think says some important things about like precarity and like what that can look like. And they only like leave town with 25 pounds, which isn't that much. So they like have to do thrifty stuff. But I also think like this book is working really hard to talk about a society that like doesn't want you to be okay. And so then forces your hand in a specific set of choices. And I think you're right. Romance is always an anachronism. Like when you're talking about how women in the Regency period in France were getting married at 27. Part of the reason is because women weren't getting their periods until they were 18, 19, 20, sometimes 23. So like the whole purpose of marriage to propagate a line or make a brewery like a legacy. Women couldn't have periods because their nutrition was so bad until they were in their 20s. So like why would you marry someone who couldn't give you children at that point? But like that's another like demonstration of of stories we tell ourselves because that's a story about lack, right? Like women were malnourished, but I'm a little like skeptical of that fact because, you know, were medical texts actually doing solid records of women getting their period? You likely wouldn't go to a doctor when you got your first period. You certainly wouldn't get an annual exam. No, the reason they've been able to construct that fact is anthropologists have been looking at leg bones, right? And women's leg bones set after their first year of courses. That's wild. And they continue to grow if you don't have your period. So your leg bones set, so you stop growing after you get your period? About the first year after. Your big femur sets. So other bones might grow a little bit, but. That's crazy. That's a cool fact. I thought I grew since I was 12. Could be just other parts of you. My femur stayed the same <laughs> length and the rest of me grew around it after I was 13? Basically. That's a fucking crazy fact. Yeah. 
I have been this height since I was 12. I was the tallest person in my middle school building. <laughs> my building? Also, like, amongst the teachers? Not just class, but building. <laughs> no, I was taller than the principal and, like, the science teacher and the gym teacher. I was taller than everyone. That means you should have been able to run the school. I mean, that's how it goes. <laughs> Up until you, you you get to high school, it's order of height. I wish. But no, your femur sets in like the 12 months after your first course set. You can always tell who is tall in middle school as a girl because they never stopped thinking of themselves as tall, even though they might be like five, six now. It's true. It's a very formative experience. Yeah. On being tall, even as other people caught up with them. But I do think like Nick makes a good point about the fetishization. But I also feel like the fetishization of the past isn't a way of us fetishizing our current moment and looking back and being like, look how far we came. And you talk about like, you know, the motivation for like getting married to be this like miserable, like you have no other choices. Right. But in our current moment, in our class structure. Right. We don't really make choices. We are forced into the positions and we don't have any real up mobility. And I think like the idea of being someone who comes from a precarious position like Minerva, who lost all of her status when her father died, being able to marry a V-count is also this kind of capitalistic endeavor of upward mobility being possible. But based on things like as long as you're charming enough and different enough from other girls, you can attract something like a higher socioeconomic status for yourself. So like how many dukes, barons, v-counts, like how many are there? I don't know this shit, but I'm assuming there's got to be a finite amount. In romance, it's bottomless. But like historically, like how many of these people were there? A lot. And like, don't quote me on this, but I think they're only like... Just ballpark it. That's all I... Yeah. It's like a ton. The aristocracy's huge, right? Like it was able to populate the House of Lords and like... Okay. But that's still only a couple hundred people, right? Yeah, that's, that's a lot though. I know. But like, if you think about like novels that are perpetuating a myth that social mobility existed for women, like they could attract a wealthy gentry... Mm-hmm. Clearly, that was only true for under a thousand people, maybe like a thousand eligible men, maybe. So it's a thousand men, but then also their younger brothers, because if you marry into a great house, oh, okay. like that's part of this, too. So like the aristocracy is able to like, you're right, it's not actually a ton of titles. But like, if you have a duke and you're the younger brother of a duke, like if you're the spare or even like however far down the line, like you still enjoy an allowance and maybe even a house with like land and stuff like that. So like these great families would have a number of human beings. But only like a few of them would be titled. And then if something happens to like the oldest brother, mm -hmm. that's why you have the heir and the spare, right? So the heir gets the title and then you have the younger brother who is basically there in case the older brother gets smallpox or dies in a horse accident or gets tetanus. And then they become the duke. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it works just like royal succession where like if someone dies, there's an immediate follow up. Right. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, it doesn't. It's insanity, but it does feel like it, it, it fits well with the myth of like capitalism, that we can all someday achieve wealth and be millionaires and that it's all just right around the bend if we just work a little harder. And that's what it feels like historicals reinforce, where it, like there's only a finite number of these people. And I'm assuming there's lots of precariously positioned women who would love to reach that status, but simply won't. And keeping that that dream alive perpetuates the stringent hierarchy. 
it's funny. I've never thought about the British aristocracy as like a scarce resource before. So this is like opening up whole new vistas for me in terms of thinking about this. There were no more than 40 dukes at any given time in Regency England. No more than 40. Holy shit. It seems like there's just a bajillion of them based on all of the books about dukes. Right. And they all have eight brothers below them, obviously, based on the number of Vcounts and Marquesses. And then all of their cousins who were barons were probably, you know, which when you consider like the actual infant mortality rate, which isn't that different from what the infant mortality rate is today in the United States, doesn't seem to make sense that there would be <laughs> this like bottomless resource of country gentry. Or that like all of them would be these like attractive men, just based on how interwoven the area aristocracy was, you know, I mean that there would have been a lot more hemophilia, that family tree, you know, roots were branches, shit was growing back into itself. Like, (laughs) you know, I like Mm -hmm. stayed up until like 4am last night finishing um, Mexican Gothic. So I'm I'm (laughs) very much thinking about just the corrosion of aristocracy and colonialism. So what's that called? The snake eating its own tail? An Ouroboros. An Ouroboros, but it's the snake fucking its own tail. Mm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. It's very much that. Like, <laughs> and the eating. It's, it's both at once. So the point that this book is very much like, if there is ever a platonic ideal of a historical romance, it is Tessa Dare's work, having read all of this. In the last five years, romance writers have become more interested in post-industrial revolution romance, which is only happening in the last five years. And it's super rare to find any like post-World War One. certainly not any post-World War Two is super rare historical romances. And I do think that has a lot to do with this idea of like a life without work as a fantasy. But people are kind of building in that fantasy more. But this discussion reminded me of my sweet folly where our hero, he had a title and he had a house, but he was broke in spite of his family was broke in spite of it. So then he was forced to engage in the colonial project of the East India Trading Company and had returned with wealth and also a hallucinogenic drug addiction from that experience. By Laura Kinsale. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's as good as Flowers from the Storm, but it is quite good. And one of the books that is dealing explicitly with the colonial project and like I the believe terrors in the early, that it visits. Late 90s is when that was published. Mm-hmm. Like our, our heroine was married after she was on the shelf to an older widower and had had a nice life and was secure and was only giving her stepdaughter a season because she liked her stepdaughter and she was 16 and really wanted to go to dances. The thing is, is I think I think when we approach the idea of historicity, we always have this idea of like sadness and lack and like how you compensate for that. Like it's not as easy as we have it now. And so to make it easier, we have to focus on like people who didn't have to work, people who are in the aristocracy. I mean, also like historical scarcity and modern day scarcity are both a myth. Right, right, exactly. They're both just choices made by the ruling class to hoard wealth. And even like in the novel, like the scarcity that Colin's experiencing is also manufactured because he just hasn't come into his wealth yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And his cousin is keeping him from it on purpose. He's just a trust fund kid. Yes. And he hasn't come into his majority to get access to his trust fund. Totally. It does blow my mind to think that there are people and there are people who I personally know who are in this like same situation today. Waiting to age into their trust funds? No, who have trust funds. 
But the interesting thing, right, is that in romance historicals, it's okay to aspire towards a trust fund. Like everyone knows about everyone else's trust fund, right? Like they know their annual allowance. That's something that is like common knowledge, right? Maybe that's like refreshing. Right. And like, this is actually what I wanted to say. Like it is refreshing the way historicals talk about money and what money can do and what doors it opens. And it is naked about it. And the way that we talk about money now, or like if you talk to people who have money, they're like, I don't know, my accountant does my tax. Like, you know, it's like, I guess I've got some money in like Mallorca or like whatever. I just like, and it's like, what the fuck? It's like, do you even know how much money you make? And it's like so gauche to talk about. It's so middle brow to talk about money. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I like nakedly talk about the fact that we're in six figures of debt. It's just like, I hate to feel grubby when I talk about money. And I feel like people who have money don't want me to talk about it because they don't want to like fess up to how money works, which is ease and access and all of the stuff that money does. And so like, I like that about historicals, but I think another way to pull this in is like Colin functions like a trust fund kid. And I'm so glad that we had this conversation because it really blew it up for me. And I think this is the intention versus impact thing. Like he says hurtful things all the time without thinking, which is not unlike my experience of people in the upper echelons of society where they just say like fucked up shit and they're like, oh, your face. Was that an insult when I said that like you curried your own horse? See, I feel like Colin more so, I think he thinks he's being funny or protecting his own feelings whenever he says cruel things. And I think he is intentional to be cruel about them. And in fact, I think he acknowledges that. An example that comes to mind, though, about what you're talking about that like rings true for me is when they go to the fair and he's dressed in his old clothes from the manor, the gambling manor hell that they went to on this, you know, wild road trip that they've been on. He wants to make a bet, right? And he reaches into his pocket and he finds that he has a five pound note. And this whole time she was like obsessively budgeting, right? And he was too for this pie that they're going to spend like a couple pence on. And then he's like, oh shit, I have a five pound note in my pocket. I just forgot about that. Which is like a shitload of money, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's going to get them the rest of the way to Scotland. It's like the excitement of finding a 20 when you do laundry. It's like, oh my God, like, look at me. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Fucking made it. There's like a level of cruelty to that because he didn't think to check his pockets because he's lived a comfortable life. He has let her have this anxiety about money that's never real for him. Whenever he's without money, whenever he's kidnapped by the highwaymen, right? He's like, you just send a letter to my cousin and they'll send you a ransom, right? And then, of course, when they get to York and there is the specific line, life is always easier with money. We were able to buy clothes. We were able to get a nice hotel. We were able to eat and we were able to book transport. And suddenly all of the like misadventures of the previous hundred pages are irrelevant to the rest of the story because he's gotten to somewhere where he can get cash out of like yield ATM or however it worked. I was confused by that. But they're like almost at his estate, right? Right. I guess so his like bank was in the town. Or like his steward, however he was able to do it, he was able to like, listen, we're never going to enjoy a historical if we get bogged down in the details of period bones and banks. (laughs) So Nick, you pointed out earlier, like 
a hypocrisy of values that's kind of tied to this classism. And I wonder if you could like speak to that a little bit more because Isabeau touched on the fact that like in historicals, the imperative to get your daughters married off because it's so freighted with the idea of like needing to survive, it becomes like less of a moral problem, right? The bad mom versus the bad dad are two very different animals. So the passage that really stuck out to me, um, and it's right before it seems like they might not make it to Scotland. And Colin is proposing an alternative to kind of save Minerva from being ruined. And it involves going and staying with a friend, Susanna. And Susanna is going to tell some lies for Minerva on her behalf to try and save her reputation. And the passage that stuck out was, Minerva knew this much was true. More than one of the young ladies she'd met in Spindle Cove had been sent there to weather a scandal or indiscretion. As the village's erstwhile patroness, Susanna kept a great many secrets. And society at large owed her a great many favors of discretion, no doubt. And... That kind of felt like going to like reputational rehab or almost like launder any kind of indiscretion that might be happening. And the fact that something like that exists is really weird to me because it just implies that like everyone is doing this or there's a huge subset of the population that is not following this like code of order that what is the origin of that kind of like societal structure and like oppression that isn't rooted in oppression and the double standard that exists where like the book opens with Minerva showing up at Colin's house like while he's in the middle of like boning down with somebody and that's just known throughout town that that's just his prerogative as a man yeah his right almost as like a like a a titled person or someone who's going to come into great wealth it's not just his title it's also his gender yeah his gender too but i don't think he would have gotten away with it in the same way if he wasn't also titled do you think so? Sure. Even in the in the series, like there's a blacksmith who does not get away with the same kinds of profligations that Colin does. I think you're right. Money has to do with it. But I also think the big thing here is gender, right? Because like the blacksmith is still allowed to have premarital sex with the teacher and the widow and whoever else he wants. And like Minerva and her sister and other women in Spindle Cove would be trounced out of society for those kinds of choices. Like, this is definitely to do with gender. And it's, you know, the fact that he's able to have that dalliance with a widow who can have a sense of humor about it because she's, you know, post-womanhood in society's estimation because she was married and then her husband died. And Colin was kind of like an equal opportunity rake, though, right? I mean, he was getting with people of all classes, correct? Well, he yeah, he had his he had his rules, but they were mostly pertained to like not I guess it was just like not no virgins. Yeah, he had like a no virgins, like he like wouldn't ruin people. Yeah, no virgins, no mothers of former lovers. Mm, I guess that's a good that's a good rule. I didn't realize I also had that rule. <laughs> just feels like practical. Yeah. Makes sense. I feel like I had a better thought about that, that society thing. But I don't know, like Susanna feels like Harvey Keitel in Pulp Fiction that just gets like called in to clean up. But as in Pulp Fiction, there's still a dead body. So her power and her worth is is founded on the lack of power and the lack of worth of other women, her ability to manage that information. <laughs> I mean, it's like frustrating that like women can't even have like agency in their own 
transgressions. Like someone else has to still come in. Granted, it is a woman, but it feels like a woman working on the behest of men to uphold these structures. Maybe I'll come back around to it. We've hit on historical classism. We've hit on Collins' intention versus impact. I think the road tripness, is there anything specific we want to stay there? I think we talked about structure and trope to my satisfaction. Something I wanted to bring up about like tropes and like shuffling them around like feels like sampling where the most sampled drum break ever is the Amen break by the Winstons. It's used in like hundreds and hundreds of songs. Like you've definitely heard it. If you go to record stores, you can always go and look in like DJ tools breaks area. And it's just records of samples and tropes to me feel a lot like just plugging those things in and using them to like new and exciting ways like using like the amen break like 500 times like it always sounds at least a little bit different if you're doing it like i don't know well another way it's like samples is that the better you are at your craft like the more you can put in i think like piling a lot of stuff a lot of tropes into a romance novel isn't actually like the best solution for like a a new writer or someone who's like not as confident as Tessa Dare obviously is here or as the author of A Christmas Gone Perfectly Wrong is especially considering that that was a novella and managed to pile them all in something less related perhaps but maybe not is the fact that I think this road trip trope allows you to build in even more tropes because you take your characters out of the context of like a specific society. So it makes sense to do things like just one bed and then to recreate things like fake relationship happens in this as well. And I think, yeah, I don't know if you can have this like confluence of tropes without, you know, pulling your characters into some kind of liminality. Or like putting your own spin on them. Or just like putting it, I feel like you literally have to take them out of the context of their community. Right, because you can't have a fake relationship if you are stuck at a house party or like the place that everybody knows you. One bed isn't going to work in Spindle Cove. And so like, I think you're right about the way in which a road trip functions as a liminal space that's always changing and is only hemmed in by the author's imagination of what can go wrong. And one of the things that I do really like about Colin is that he is an incredible liar. Like he is so good at improvisation and it's fun. Like when his lies aren't, you know, malicious or hurtful, like it's fun to watch. One of the things that's weird about this is like, I feel like it would be hard to trust Colin after like watching him lie to so many people, but it's always in the service of Minerva. So it never endangers their, like, in fact, it breeds a kind of intimacy. Like he's able to say true things through lies to her. Like he talks about his nightmares in a way that she can understand in this like very weird allegorical lie. I don't know that his lies are like malicious while they're on the road because they seem very practical. Like they are trying to not be who they are because they're trying to travel incognito. I mean, does he need to go to the lengths that he goes to in his lies? No, but I think he's almost doing that for Minerva's enjoyment. I mean, like calling it lying, like, okay, well, fiction's a lie. So like, (laughs) it just feels like a little too loaded. If anything, he's more of a storyteller. I think that's fair. I think you're right to say that he is like he is spinning tales. 
And you're right to say that he's doing it from a nervous enjoyment. And like the moments where she like participates in his weaving, he really enjoys. And so like then it becomes this like game he's trying to get her to like participate in. And this book does this thing structurally where it's like whenever we're in Colin's perspective and he's watching Minerva do a thing, he's like, there it is. Surprise. Right. Like he's constantly surprised by her participation. He's always trying to draw her out to create that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. On purpose. He wants to make her uncomfortable because he finds that her reactions are interesting to him. He also wants to make her uncomfortable because he wants her to enjoy things more. And part of that just necessitates the uncomfortableness because she's so cloistered. But I don't know that it's malicious. And I say that mostly because after they have their blowjob night and he talks about them being circus performers and then refers to her as being a sword swallower. And like that was an in joke that they shared that like basically she finally like showed up for the like witty, playful banter that he's been crafting this whole time. And it was kind of like getting her to like let loose a little bit. And granted, he he does that in ways that that are shitty, but also kind of practical like he knows that they can't walk into the gambling den without her dressed kind of scantily there's like a knowledge that if we're going to pass this off if you're going to be my mistress like you have to look a certain way and in that moment i mean it's always frustrating to me when books and movies and tv shows turn on a lack of communication when up to that point they seem to have really good communication and if there was just more honesty and transparency there wouldn't have been that that misfire between them Like if he could have just in that moment been like, look, you need to look a certain way. So we need to adjust your outfit. But because he's all like, I'm ruining you and blah, blah, blah. I'm just going to be a monster. And it it feels a little like mercurial in a way that serves the text and not the fidelity of the character that's being crafted. And that's not something I just blame Tessa Dare for. I think it's kind of a lazy way of building conflict. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think romance relies a lot on this. Like, you guys would just talk to each other. This wouldn't be a conflict. And like, especially I think, as you say, for two characters that have communicated extremely well and intimately up until this point, like he reveals that he's claustrophobic in the first, like, you know, 85 pages. And like, that's something that I would imagine a person like Colin wouldn't reveal lightly and certainly hadn't. Like we we learned that that's very privileged information. So the fact that they then can't speak openly later on and it causes these weird riffs and momentary kind of scuffles, it, it feels very sitcom, like very threes company in a way that's like, again, like not not a genre problem and not necessarily a Tessa Dare problem, but just like a, this is what we settle for as conflict in storytelling. Well, I think an important distinction is like he is definitely lying. He's just not lying to Minerva. Oh, yeah. He's lying to himself for sure. Well, and also to the other people who help him. But he is subtly in ways that I think Minerva can't pick up on because of her own self-confidence issues or whatever. He does admit that he's a little bit cruel with her once they arrive at the gambling mansion because he's jealous. She's brought up Sir Alistair Kent uh, as he was trying to put moves on her and he finds that very frustrating. And so now he's going to be like rough with her. At least we get his internality about it. And that's why that's happening. For me, when the character breaks, 
which I had this exact, yes, that like gave me so much clarity on like one of the problems I have with this book. And I think I may have talked about it the first time we discussed this book was when he decides to marry her, he decides to take up this project of proving to himself that he's worth being her husband by getting Francine, the dinosaur footprint to Scotland. And he never communicates that with her. He's like not even going to bring up marriage with her until he's able to prove this to her ostensibly, but really to himself. And that is like absolutely like a lazy (laughs) way to create conflict around this final necessity for romance, which is the HEA. I think it's also worth pointing out, though, that we don't know that Colin is lying to the other women that he's with. We don't know like the relationship that they've had because we're, we're not really privileged to it. Like, like we get like his. Oh, I'm talking about the people he meets along the journey, like the family who he tells that he's a like the Fontleys, a uh, prince missionary or a missionary. And then the girls that he says he's a prince to. Do you think missionary is also supposed to be kind of tongue in cheek? I think so. Like, that's my job, but it's also a sexual position. <laughs> I mean, just Maybe. like thinking about the sword swallowing and I don't know. I think it only becomes tongue in cheek because he meets them that first night after they've spent the first night together and they, they only see each other naked. And then he has the nightmare and then she wakes up alone and she's like, oh, shit, he's left. Like, what the fuck am I going to do? Like, he would have left a note. She goes downstairs and he's like already lied to the Fontleys. And then they have like that whole trip, which isn't necessarily that kind of breaks the part of like this lie is for her, like to entertain her. But maybe he was anticipating her that whole scene in the end was wild because isn't it like the Fontleys getting down is what makes them horny and then they fuck around and then the Fontleys think their brother and sister missionaries yep so then there's the incest implication yep which is also wild thinking about like aristocracy the Habsburgs like family trees (laughs) growing inward and it's poking fun at something that was very much happening But if you acknowledge it, it's like, oh, my God. But as long as there's someone like Susanna who's, you know, covering up everything, it's fine. There, my friend recently applied for a marriage license in Wisconsin, and one of the li- one of the fields was, if you are cousins, which one of you is sterile? Wow. <laughs> if yes, above. Yeah. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> I mean, you used to need to get a blood test in some states to prove that you weren't too close. Which really says something about the trust that state puts in its people. <laughs> yeah. We got to make sure y'all are related because you just can't seem to stop fucking your siblings. Wow. Yeah, that seems so funny to me. Like, God, this book. The Fontleys are one of my favorite pieces of the adventure. I love the teenage boy who becomes smitten. And at, when they rediscover, when they're like desperate on the side of the road at the end, and a carriage pulls up and it is the Fontleys. And the teenage boy yeah. presses his hand to the window <laughs> and says, I'll pray for you. I also like, I don't understand how the Fontleys would be behind them, which i sure they could have been making other stops along the way, but it, it, it just seemed like they should be like home by now the Fontley stayed on the road and they went as the crow flies a couple of times there see perfect it's a faultless book yeah fait accompli god the Fontleys it just made me so like this is when I like the knife's edge like I don't want to call Tessa Darren edgelord because that's way too much but like the Fontleys not (laughs) certainly not an edgelord I was so uncomfortable with his lies. And like, this is my fourth or fifth time reading this book. And I like still cringe upon the discovery the next morning when Minerva's like, why are you leaving us? Like, what happened? And I'm like, they heard you banging. Like, 
like which is also like if you can hear them banging they're gonna be able to hear you banging so it just it it seemed again like did we think about this and clearly we didn't no they were so swept up but also they're probably not used to staying in hotels so they don't know the basic rule of a hotel which is yeah totally i don't know gotta keep that shit unlocked But yeah, this book is a book that deals with uncomfortable in ways that I think are really strong. Like there are a couple of times and we've talked about this earlier in the episode where like this intention versus impact and Morgan, you think that he's being cruel sometimes on purpose when like he's talking about how he was good at maths, plural because it's British, but he never scored well because he didn't want to because people who are good at maths are priggish, four-eyed losers, basically. And then she's like, oh, are we? And then he's like, fuck I didn't mean you, obviously. And she's like, well, you did, so. Yeah, but there are times when we get his internality that he's doing it on purpose. Yeah, and I think there is a kind of carelessness to Colin and a kind of seriousness that begets carelessness, like blinders in Minerva. And like their carelessness really rubs up against each other in ways that can be frictive and painful, but also like they fill in each other's gaps in interesting ways and surprising ways. Like this book continues to be like a weird surprise even after all this time which I think is powerful well Colin as a character he really functions on that idea of the great male renunciation like the classic like popular boy problem that we see in like she's all that I think beautifully portrayed by Freddie Prinze Jr. which is always being bad at stuff always deferring because people like right like he loses on purpose when he's gambling because that makes him more likable he doesn't be good at math he don't be good at math Uh (laughs) To be likable. And then he also is constantly like deferring things with a joke. She says, I love you. And she sees him start to talk and she cuts him off. And she's like, I really can't deal with you making a joke right now. Right. Which is another way of having a renunciation. Charming, popular boy problems. Sexiest part. Nick, do you want to go first? Yeah. I mean, it's probably the cave in the beginning. Ah, so good. Oh, wow. Yeah. I like the change of scenery. I like that it pulls him out of his comfort zone. I mean, the whole thing felt very kind of vaginal, you know, (laughs) like it's like cave. They had to literally swim through like a canal. Wet canal. A wet, salty canal to get into like a channel. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it it was like their first moment, both of like physical intimacy and also like emotional intimacy. I mean, they're all wet and shit. Like, that's always good. It reminded me of like, this wasn't like like a sexual awakening scene for me, but like in, in Spider-Man when they make out upside down in the rain. I mean, I think I was like in seventh grade. So like on the cusp of like wanting to start dating and kissing people, but unsure like what that was or what that meant and i i haven't read or seen pride and prejudice but there's that like wet gazebo scene right isn't that a thing Mm -hmm. so it felt very much like that and it was like minerva showing colin her most prized thing which is francine and colin i guess sex would be his most prized that feels like the exchange (laughs) that they have is like I'm going to show you that women are more than just vessels. And Colin's like, and I'm going to show you how much fun you can actually have with a man. (laughs) You also point out something that's totally brilliant about that scene, which is that it upends the power dynamic between them. And so without being like after school special about, you know, power dynamics and consent and what that means, it creates like a safe, a more even playing field for the two people to meet each other on. Because not only does Colin like not know as much about the thing that they're talking about, 
fossils. I know we don't call them dinosaurs at the time, but like, you know, things like that, that Minerva is well versed in and should be recognized as an esteemed scholar of. So both like giving her that space as being his like intellectual superior, but also that's the first time we know that he's claustrophobic and it it, it opens up the larger trauma that we're ultimately going to come to learn about Colin with the with the carriage accident, which were carriage accidents super common. Just just how you brought up that other book you all read recently, One Bed for Christmas, that also had a carriage wreck. And, and I feel like there was another book that involved a carriage accident. I don't think it's as common as romance novels would have us believe. But like you are traveling at pretty high speeds, like, you know, six horsepower or more. Six horsepower or more. <laughs> and like in a pretty precarious wooden thing, like it seems like if an accident on unpaved roads yeah yeah and like an axle breaking or a wheel breaking would be catastrophic even if you weren't traveling that fast but if you're traveling at like you know any kind of speed like a flat tire is inconvenient but like your wooden wheel coming off would just like wreck you that makes a lot of sense actually right and like the carriage can flip over kill the horses like it they're just so many yeah the horses may keep running yeah yeah okay okay i'm convinced by it but I, I mean, I think it's an important note that like when we write historicals, we're really writing about our current moment. And I think a carriage accident is an obvious like connection to a car accident, which isn't the most common thing, but is an anxiety most people share. Yes. And understand. And like it's easily something that could kill all of us. Yeah. And that we're engaging in daily almost. Constantly. Yeah. yeah. Even though we live in America and could theoretically get shot at any time, it does feel like cars would be the number one thing that probably take out the most people. Yeah. Oh, aside from COVID. I'm sorry. <laughs> aside from our breath. Yeah. Your COVID expressions. What was your weirdest part, Isabel? You mean sexiest part? Oh, sexiest part. Sexiest part. Uh, I love the dry humping. I am a sucker for dry humping scenes. I also really like love the setup for that particular scene, like her being like, someone's being murdered. And he's like, that's pleasure, goose. You need to like, and then like they have this whole conversation about it. I also love that she's like brought her trousseau with her. So I'm like, I'm very into the corporealness. Like she's like needled these beautiful little like ammonites or whatever, non-nautiluses onto her trousseau. Cause like if she has to do something like that, she's going to do something that's pleasurable for her. And so she has these beautiful sheets and coverlet with her um, protecting Francine. And like, they just get to bone down uh, on her beautiful trousseau, which like, it was just, I don't know. And they're always crisp, which even after days seems silly, but like work. And I just like, I don't know. I'm a sucker for dry humping. I always am. It's just like, I'm super into it in text. It's so low stakes. Yeah. Thinking about breeder porn, dry humping is, is the... You know, if we have to have a dichotomy, I actually really like them. I would say dry humping would be the anti-breeder porn. It also feels like discovery. Like, I think like the blowjob scene is also really funny. But the thing that I find sexiest about that scene is at the end when she's like got her glasses all fogged and she's like, that was amazing. And that's like, that's a weird thing for me to enjoy about that scene is like her reaction versus like the scene itself. But I think that's because I over identify with Minerva. I think that makes sense, though, too, because like, I mean, so much of what Colin does is for her reaction and to try and get her to come out of her shell so a shell a shell mm -hmm. her being so like flustered and such at the end i think is satisfying in that regard i don't see dry humping as being sexy though i gotta be honest you didn't enjoy it i don't enjoy dry humping myself is what i'm saying because <laughs> it's just another way to say chafing and chafing <laughs> chafing is a, is a bad thing yeah <laughs> I was about to say, I think maybe it's because
because if you are dry humping and you finish, then you just have to like sit in wet. Mm, no, it's it's not about the finishing. It's about the actual act of doing it. Yeah, it's the chafing. <laughs> the chafing. And like, yeah, the finishing, it would certainly be bad. Like you have to change everything downstairs. I mean, that's just all of it's bad. <laughs> and like take a shower afterwards. That's one of the benefits of like moving out of your parents' house is you get to stop dry humping. That's super true. Like you get to move. But I don't know. It's something furtive. Something about your parents' house that just keeps your pants on. That's not true. I totally had sex <laughs> in my parents' house. But... <laughs> yeah, I know. Off all the time. Mm-hmm. Morgan, what was your sexiest part? Well, mine's related to yours. One thing I will say that struck me on reading this for a second time, I know the first time I read it, I was obsessed with the cave scene. It was the cave scene all day for me. Rereading it, all of the sex scenes were much more interesting um, and really showed character development. Just once again, a note on the fact that Tessa Dare is doing the most with this book. But I think conceptually, it's it's kind of related to what you said, Isabeau. I was very interested in the trousseau. One of the scenes when she, after the blowjob night, she takes a, a bath and then she puts on one of the like lacy nightgowns that she like never thought of herself right as being able to inhabit or be the kind of person who wears that and like pulling it tight enough so that she can see her nipples and her bush through it and thinking of herself as like desirable and desired which is kind of a wholeness in itself and also the idea of like taking this very restrictive project of building a trousseau for someday. And the whole time she's built it, she's thought never. And then she's able to imagine this new possibility of like enjoying her trousseau outside of the context of a marriage and not just having it kind of waste away for her and being able to kind of create her own narrative was very interesting. The sex scenes are are great. I think the addition of the trousseau added just enough like interest for me, a little bit of edge to like otherwise, you know, pretty classic sex scene stuff. The other thing that struck me is the sheer number of sex scenes. I did not remember them being as frequent as they are. Yeah, I think there's this scene when they first get naked together where, and he says this thing where he's like, I'm not going to seduce you, even though he's like totally erect and like his penis is like waving at her. <laughs> and he's like, I, you know, I just want to say it clear so that you understand that when, you know, things may happen later, it's not because I don't desire you. It's because I have these rules. And then she kind of like laughs and like takes on that information. And she's like, we do have the oddest conversations. Their physical intimacy feels like such an outgrowth of the communication that they've already developed that those scenes really, the fact that there are so many of them also just feels like a different way of having a conversation. Can I lead with my weirdest part now? Please. So they have escaped a band of highwaymen and they set off across a meadow and they're about to get intimate and she mentions Sir Alistair Kent, who she's been corresponding with about her dinosaur. And he gets all flustered because he, you know, thinks she her affections might be elsewhere, right? And so they traipse over to this manor house where he knows a guy who runs basically a gambling hell out of his manor house and he has a relationship. And this is the point at which he has this internality of like, I'm jealous, so I'm going to be rough with her. And I'm going to make all these rules that she doesn't like. And he's he's really frustrated with her and it, and it comes from a, a place of not being vulnerable with one another, right? And so he 
he like rips off her sleeves and pulls down her bodice and takes her into the house and then creates a story around her to where she cannot speak because he says she doesn't understand English and she can't speak it. She's from this like really remote island and she might be an assassin. And in order to get through, she understands that she has to be silent. And over the course of their play acting, while she is silent... He is able to rationalize his forgiveness for her. I was very annoyed. I feel like this whole time this character is this relationship and this affection, right? I would have been more pleased if he had discovered his affection, rediscovered his affection for her, been able to justify it through a conversation with her, especially since the relationship has been so built on this frank and strange conversation between the two of them. It was just kind of one of those, like... The idea of of someone being silent allows you to project, right, whatever you want them to be saying, right? And so that's what he does. And in the context of the romance novel, it's all good, nice stuff, right? He's like, oh, she's, she's helping me and she's a part of this project with me. But the fact that she doesn't get to articulate that herself, he doesn't seek confirmation of that even. He accepts it as fact without any sort of evidence. Was my weirdest, weirdest part this time through. That's interesting. I didn't read that scene that way. What, how did you read it? I think the reason that he had her not speak is because he knew that she couldn't convince someone for that long that she was his mistress. Like she just she, she's not used to moving in those circles. She wouldn't have been able to keep up. I think it was like a cost benefit analysis on Colin's part of like, this is a story that I need to tell by myself because I know the audience and I know the environment. So I didn't think of it so much as like censure as like they're they're not out of the woods yet in terms of like survival. Yeah, I totally agree about that. And then I also think about like the realization that he has about his true affection for her comes from they're playing cards for hours and they're just kind of like cuddling the whole time. I think that physical intimacy that didn't involve sex led to a different understanding on his part because at least we're led to understand he doesn't have that kind of relationship with women. So, I mean, they've always been like melatonin for him, basically, is how he treats women. And now he's not only hanging out with a woman in daytime, but they're not fucking. And they're having this closeness that I think had a lot of nonverbal communication. And they actually were speaking to each other kind of throughout that game, but just very surreptitiously, you know? He whispers in her ear at one point. She doesn't speak until she does the bastard thing mm-hmm. but like they have a lot of like nonverbal communication but how does he know that's not an act because he thinks he knows her at that point like i mean i agree I- that's the thing like i just wish he had like sought out like i i totally like i think absolutely like he created a story that prevented her from having to worry about fitting in and putting on the right performance he structured that in that way but in his own internality he starts thinking what she's thinking in that moment he starts considering her thoughts and feelings but she's totally silent so there's no way for her to confirm or deny them and he doesn't seek out any clarification after the fact He's like, oh, she's cuddling me. So that must mean this. But like, that's not the same as, you know, you've set up something as a pretend 
and to the fact that he assumes it's truthful and is able to make that assumption because she's not speaking. And like he speaks to her in her ear, but she's not able to respond to that because supposedly she doesn't speak English, right? I mean, she can't respond with language, but she responds physically by the comforts. Right, like she makes him the little plate and she like does all that stuff. And I think I think you're right. There is like a very particular tension in this scene. I think, Morgan, you're right to read it as a particular kind of break from what came before because every time he's telling a story or a fiction, she's not precluded from including herself. She gets to include herself in lots of ways, but he's always asking, you know, he's like, do you want to tell the story or do you want to tell this part or like what happened next? And like, this is a scene that doesn't have that, which does feel really weird. It also feels really freighted and it like, there's a sinisterness that like, because we're so rooted in Colin's perspective, we see it as he's protecting her, but we don't get her perspective until the later when she starts doing the bastard thing, which makes it feel like a break. And I think like maneuvers us into the next part, because I think like two thirds to three quarters of this book are like tight as a well-laced sneaker. And then like, this is the part where it begins to like unravel for me. It it also kind of gives her an opportunity because even though he's not explicitly saying like, do you want to tell the story? She shows up and does her, her whole bastard performance in a way that he's like thrilled by. Yeah, he is thrilled by it. And then does the blowjob scene come immediately that evening? Yeah, it does. Yes. So like we're almost I think because of what comes after that scene, I think we can retroactively read it as even though it feels like they're kind of in stasis, I think they are moving forward just in in ways that are kind of quieter. I also do think that like it felt a lot like Cloud City. In Empire Strikes Back, when they when they go to his friend's house and even like the gambling, I mean, it like very much felt like they had like a Han and Lando relationship. And even though, you know, it's not actively being occupied by, you know, Vader at the time, it does feel like the stakes are higher at his friend's house because that's a direct conduit to society. So they have to be even more careful around Colin's friends than they do around the Fulton Roy's or when they do the day of field work when he's like thatching the roof. Like, even though it's like this like frivolous kind of like bacchanal, like the stakes are actually very high, which feels like when y'all read books that have like ball scenes and dances, like those are very socially precarious settings that are made to appear inviting. And I think like that was kind of the the turn that they were, were able to navigate. I'm so glad that you brought up like I hadn't thought about it in terms of Cloud City, but I think that's exactly right. Like because she says that she loves him and like they have that whole scene. She puts on her little fichu the day after. Like it does represent a real shift, at least in terms of Morgan, as you said, her wholeness in terms of being desired and having desires and seeing herself as desirable. Yeah, it's 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 weird. I think this is like it's actually yeah, it's very fraught, as you say. And like there's a lot happening both in terms of the characters and like not all of it is pleasurable. Yeah, it's a very socially precarious situation, obviously. My problem with with it is his assumption, right? That even in this socially precarious situation, which clearly they're both aware that they have to be on very high guard about, even though he's getting drunk, that he would assume that she is is expressing some sort of like true affection as opposed to carefully parsing. And clearly she's the fact that she does that performance of like calling him a bastard, right? Because she's tired and she wants to go to bed shows that she's alert and she's calculating and she's conscious. And the fact that he reads into that 
a level of forgiveness for him being selfishly cruel is and jealous, right? And that the book never resolves that is what's uncouth to me. <laughs> and like even worse because they make Alistair hot. Like they should have made him an old withered man because that would have been really funny if Alistair is like this like wizened Dumbledore, you know, like that would have been a hoot. And instead he's like this burly dude who's also kind of like a romantic threat in like the 11th hour, but who like looms large throughout the text, but then like actually is like, I think that would have been like an even like funnier kind of turn, but I think it's great that it confirms Colin's worst fears. I think so, too. Like everything, everything that's been wearing on him and that he's been able to push aside as probably not being true is then proven to be the worst case scenario is real. But I wish we'd spent more time with that and to like really then in the moment of that romantic rival that like Minerva has a long standing years long correspondent relationship with like I wish we'd spent some fucking time excavating Colin's insecurities through this lens and like it would have been like I mean there are a hundred other ways that that could have been cool like Alistair could have been like or a woman yeah like that would have been fucking awesome yeah or like another woman would have been amazing or like you know a pirate or whatever I liked that he was handsome because even in the breath which is all it is it's really just like it gives Minerva the freedom of another choice Okay. But she doesn't even consider it, right? No. I know she doesn't, but it's like in the text. And like, that's what I mean, where it's like, I really wanted Alistair to be a choice because why else have him be handsome and young and like interested? Besides to be like, Colin's so great. She's so in love with Colin. Colin's the only one she can think about that she's willing to like throw away this years long correspondence, this secret wish she's held close to her heart. And then like the confirmation that he's also like physically desirable. And she's just like, Alistair who? As soon as he walks into the room. But no. She never expressed any kind of interest like romantically in Al. Like that was a professional relationship that she had with him. There is a part where right before the gambling hell where he's kind of like teasing her about it. He's like insulting to the idea of Alistair, right? And to the idea of geologists, right? He's like a warty old man. Her internality is like, yeah, you know, like maybe I thought that. And she realizes that Alistair probably thinks she's a man. And she's been perceiving like affection in his letters and allowing herself to hope. And now she's worried that he's going to assume she's a man. And and then she's baffled by the idea of homosexuality. Right. But there is that exchange where we do discover that she has a flicker. A secret wish. Perhaps not a torch. Yeah. Right. But a piece of flint. (laughs) scraping right she does harbor this very secret wish that alistair turns out to be super hot and is going to be as interested in her ideas as the rest of her which i think everyone can relate to like the idea of a person being so appealing yes a pen pal that you've like built up in your mind or isn't that like what the whole of tinder is you see like (laughs) four features of a person and then you like allow yourself to hope yeah i mean yeah Minerva exists in a weird place where she like has these hopes, but then she ruthlessly denies that she has them even to herself. Right. So sad. What was your weirdest part? My weirdest part is the end. Like the fact that we get this breath of a choice in Alistair being hot. The fact that she doesn't present at all, which just feels like after all this work, just like such a heartbreak. And like, you know, that he does the whole thing where he's like, marry me and you can present. And I was like, I don't love that. But like, I really do want you to find a way to present. And then like, you know, the whole epilogue is like her, like just like living on a cottage on his land while he like woos her. And it's like, that's a fine 
epilogue, I guess. It's like the end is really undone for me here, where it's like such a bummer. I thought the end was boring and it betrayed who I thought Minerva to be. Was that your weirdest part? Yeah, that was also my weirdest part. And like, it couldn't even be interesting. Not that I find the end of Greece to be super interesting, but like she couldn't even just turn into a, like a harlot, you know? It was like, now I just am less of myself. The whole thing of the courtship falls apart. Like he insists that he wants a courtship because he wants to like publicly worship her. But like that implies that you can't do that once you're married to someone and isn't even explained correctly like that isn't even interrogated or resolved by the text but then when they actually do the courtship they're in some like podunk country town they're not even in london they're just dating (laughs) yeah yeah like quietly for like no one to see you know yeah and then it was like this just felt like a self-serving performance exactly yeah for like what it all felt like it was moving towards it really it really lost some steam. Like, talk about a carriage wreck. Like, that's very much what it felt like at the end of this book. No kidding. Yeah. And then the wolves came. When she shoots Francine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I just, like, I was heartbroken. Like, I don't, like, I... God. I had a really hard time finishing the last 30 pages of this book because I just was like, it's over to me. I was annoyed by it. There's no rescuing that at that point. And like her sacrifice of like her literal self and like for what it for what? Because it's not like Colin was like, you have to give up your intellectual pursuits to marry me. Like the whole point of their whole relationship was to get her to this like esteemed conference to become a recognized celebrated scholar because that's what she should be because she discovered dinosaurs, right? Yeah. Like it's like a big fucking deal. Yeah. And even that gets kind of swept away. So I don't know. It it was very um, lazy. It felt like how we were talking about like tropes and reshuffling them. And it was like everything has to bend back towards this happy ending that it just takes all the fun out of it. I remember the ending being one of my weirdest parts the first time we discussed this. And I remember thinking like, oh, I don't know how else they could have done it. But even them like actually getting married in that lobby and then her presenting her findings would have been far more satisfactory than the direction it took. And I wonder like because it's such a betrayal, right? Because it swings so hard the other direction. Like what is the goal and intent behind it? Like what could we parse as like the meaning behind this ending? Because her desire to present her findings was not so much to become a part of this geological society. She was already a part of it. She shares that she's been published five times. And Colin has that great line whenever he's like startled and and very impressed by that fact, right? She's already a part of this community and an influential part of it at that. Her goal then can be understood is for this greater good, right? Like people need to know that this giant lizard may have existed. We need to put our resources towards looking for giant lizards to help us understand our current world, right, that we're living in. But the book decides to shutter that project for the greater good, at least in the context of this novel and what we get on the page, in order to allow her to also not have Colin's dream of a public courtship And like neither of them really get what they want. And there's nothing that even satisfies like the societal expectation. (laughs) And like neither of them is telling the other to sacrifice for them. It's like some weird gift of the Magi kind of situation. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. 
but it's like gift of the magi but there never needed to be sacrifice in the first place like you could have enjoyed your comb and you could have used your watch chain there was no need to sacrifice i know that we're supposed to think the characters are happy but like it feels like when neither of you knows what you want to have for dinner or both of you feel bad about imposing what you want to have for dinner on the other person so then you just both end up just eating chicken fingers but you're not even in the mood for chicken fingers which again is just a failure of communication yes yeah just a failure of communication but minerva's mother she's ecstatic oh totally she has her security she got her hea and her hea at any cost her mother is probably in her comfort level with this transgression is probably one of the most edgy characters in the book her relentlessness and her ruthlessness to get her daughters married like she actually pursues that to its bitter end whereas like Minerva won't even get married in a lobby to tell people about the dinosaur ultimately so anyways I guess the point is Minerva's mother is the real hero well she got what she wanted yeah like the only one who like can say they concretely got what they wanted yeah why would Tessa Dare write an ending like that after writing a book as tight and structured and thoughtful so this is early on in Tessa Dare's career I think this is probably her fourth book. When was this published? 2012. Okay. And I think like that's it. I don't think Tessa Dare would write a book like this now. And I think like she's come a long way as an author, but I also think the genre has come a long way there. I think like Courtney Milan didn't write endings like this. She wrote a lot of books actually before this one. Oh, did she? Yeah. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah, nine. Oh, her first series was called the Wonton Dairy Maid Trilogy. It's actually a pretty good series. I like that one. That's a great name for a trilogy. Yeah, it's a weird series. Uh, Womance or Nomance? I mean, I think it's a womance in the sense that it was sexy. But <laughs> is that your main category for whether or not a book is? Well, I just I don't have anything else to compare it to. So this is kind of like its own standalone right now. But I think the ending, unfortunately, makes it not a good book for me. Like, I think it achieved its goal of being entertaining and being titillating. But I think it kind of failed for me. Speaking of rocking distinctions. The fact that you said you think this is a womance, but it's not a good book. Now I'm puzzling over the fact if I've been selecting things to be womances because they are good books or because they are romances that I would recommend specifically. I think this is a good book. My mom read this and she does not like romances. She's been reading along with us and has not enjoyed any of them and is absolutely ecstatic over this book. Thinks it's so good and so funny. I mean, that's good. Yeah. And, and I think I would recommend this to people who weren't necessarily I would say this is remains a romance for me I think Isabeau was very correct in recommending it to someone who'd never read romance before and was skeptical of it it felt like a really good introduction and like it was extremely well written it was entertaining I think it ultimately just failed is kind of my take on it so this is my fifth time reading it I think that's a fair take I think all the problems that we've discussed are right and I think one of the things that's interesting to me about this book now that I've read so many for this podcast but also like you know been on this journey of this project with you guys I think this remains a romance for me I laughed out loud I highlighted new parts like this book is just I think it's actually becoming romance canon and I don't think I'm the only person who thinks that I think shelf love when they solicited like what would you put in the canon 
and this was one that was put up a lot. And I think for all of the reasons that we're sort of like moving around, where like the text is quite tight for most of it, like the characters do go on an emotional journey, which is really interesting. Like Minerva is singular in a lot of really particular ways that are also like deeply seated in the genre now. And so I think like this is a good book, but the thing is like it's not aging well. And I think I've read better romances by this author. I've read better romances in the historical subcategory by other authors. And I think like this ending won't hold up. And like, that's the move. It's also wild to me. This is only eight years old. Like I initially thought that this was going to be like a 70s or 80s era book. I don't know why I assumed that. We should... It's nowhere near batshit enough. Yeah, totally. Like, no. And like, that's what I was like, kind of hoping and expecting was like for like, you know, Holocaust of emotions, like stuff like that. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, like this was actually like great in the sense that it was a little bit more reserved in that regard. But it's not like we didn't know or, or like have the gains we made in the past eight years in regards to like, when did like the whole like lean in thing start? And like being like a girl boss and like that kind of shit and like having like 2014. Okay. Right. And then Me Too was 2015, 2016. Okay. So like a lot has happened from 2012 to 2020, especially in terms of the language that we use to talk about the female experience. Not that much has changed in the actual female experience. Sure, 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 sure. But like this felt like 50s housewife kind of ending. Like Minerva felt like she got domesticated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is very much a 70s, 80s ending. Not a 2012 ending. Totally. And like that, I think, is in, in talking about historicals. Writing about the past is actually commenting on the present. Like, mm -hmm. where was Tessa Dare's head in 2012? That, like, that was an ending that felt appropriate for the time. Well, and to Isabeau's point and to your point, Nick, the fact that this book is considered romance canon, or at least, like, very, 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 very good, and the fact that we consider the happily ever after to be this core principle, like, what do you do with a book that has a bad happily ever after? Or are there people who enjoy this happily ever after? It feels so sloppy that it feels like even. Even like if you're okay with the politic of it, the delivery feels so sloppy and disjointed that I wonder like if you enjoy the ending of A Week to Be Wicked, could you tell us what you enjoy about it? What you like about it? I didn't enjoy it, so I don't know what to say. I know. I'm, pu I'm putting it out there to the listeners. Yeah, that would be an interesting take. I love to know because surely like if this book is as important as it seems to be with this ending, then can the HEA hold? Like how important is it really? Um, Especially because you're right, Nick, like this is a very 70s, 80s, 50s housewife ending. We're still writing these in 2012. Guess what? Like even the better structured, better delivered ones have this same kind of conceit happening, right? In 2020. And so what gives? Like, <laughs> yeah, it feels lazy. I understand having a happy ending and I understand the value and utility of that in the genre, but I don't think it's just a happy ending. I think happily ever afters have to be earned. The other thing is like they have to be faithful to the characters that you've made. And I think, Nick, you pointed out earlier where it's like it just doesn't feel like it's true to the journeys that these characters have been on. So then it's like, is this a problem of the HEA? Maybe. But like also 
I think, as we're really circling here. It's actually just a problem of this ending. Well, but here's the thing. Happily ever afters that work still have these people ending up in some kind of monogamous romantic relationship, typically marriage, oftentimes with a surprise baby on the way, right? This very heteronormative, even when it's not a heterosexual novel, as we've discovered, like a very heteronormative worldview of like what it means to like have a resolved relationship. We've only read one novel that saw a love story through to death, right? The actual ending and talked about like a holistic happily ever after. And people are talking about happily for now, but I think that misses the point. I think like when a happily ever after works, whenever it feels right, is because these characters have been working towards this specific heteronormative patriarchal idea of a happily ever after the whole time. And I think what almost breaks here is that these two characters seem both opposed to that societal idea in their current moment, and then they have the most boring possible ending, right? I think you're right. Like, they aren't working for the project of a coupledom. And so then the fact that they have to, like, fall back on one is a letdown. Maybe the book's sloppiness is actually a commentary on that. Maybe she's playing chess and we're playing checkers. And she's like, doesn't this suck that this is the expectation? Like, I have given you this incredible adventure novel, but what you want is for them to be quietly married in the country. And so that's what I'm going to give you in spite of everything else that I've created. I don't know if that's it. I don't think that's it. But that is like, I don't think she's doing it on purpose necessarily. Perhaps she is. I don't want to write it off. But it is such a shuddering difference between the story and the ending. I mean, I think like one of the problems about happy ever after endings is like, obviously, all these relationships end in death. There's always a point where one of these people is going to be alive and the other one will not be. And like, do y'all know the Jason Isbell and the 400 unit song? If we were vampires, it's fucking devastating because it's written acknowledging that even though I'm really happy and in love right now, there's going to be a point when one of us is going to be dead. And I wish that we could just be immortal so we could continue this forever. And it's like, I've listened to it once and I do not want to hear it ever again because it just is too real. It's like making jokes about getting a family pet that you're just making a down payment on being really sad in 10 years. And like, there is something to that because you you just want to live in the niceties of it. But when you make those niceties like so tropey or false, it kind of undermines the whole thing, I feel. So in Transcendence, they die and become this like famous fossil, right? Within 10 minutes of one another, they go back to their cave and they, right? And the book remembers the good times that they had leading up to that in the same way that you would right before you go to die in the arms of a lover. And so I don't know if that's necessarily disingenuine to not think about the bad times. And and indeed, not thinking about the bad times is, is the project of romance. Sure. But I think like the thing about A Week to be Wicked is, is that it really shows all of the problems with the HEA as we understand it and typify it, I think. It feels like the book ending equivalent of like, if someone like is expressing that they're like experiencing depression and someone tells them, well, why don't you just try being happy? And it really misses the boat of like what the actual problem is. And it just feels like this glossy sheen, like a fatal positivity that I think is actually more sinister than we allow ourselves to acknowledge, like just hang in there, cat posters and shit, like (laughs) doesn't acknowledge like that some people can't. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
And I think it just it puts kind of a convenient gloss over a lot of other problems that I think romance just kind of glides over. You know, whenever they do the like, can you believe that you're drinking Folgers coffee, right? They give people like this blind taste test of coffee and then they're like, guess what? It's mass produced. Slaves picked those beans. And it tastes as good as the other kind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But that's like what goes unsaid. <laughs> and they're like, can you believe it's Folgers? Totally. There's this thing that you said earlier, Morgan, where the idea that you can't have a courtship in a marriage, right? Where like that Colin could have married her in that moment. She could have presented and then they could have courted each other. That's a trope in and of itself. Forced marriage. And so this like full bore move to a happily ever after that ends in a wedding rather than even hints at like something else. It just feels like a, as Nick has already said, it feels like really old and antiquated in ways that are gross, but it also feels unimaginative. And for such an imaginative book that has really been discussing problems of class, either obliquely or straight on, where it has been discussing problems and precarity of gender, either obliquely or straight on, this elides so much of that good work with this like pretty bow that like you untie immediately. And it doesn't feel satisfying. And I think like the thing about an HEA, the way that it has to function for it to continue, and like we can continue to have this conversation of whether or not it's important, but I think it has to be satisfying. If you don't have an HEA that satisfies, you don't have an HEA, really. That's a really good point. Well, and there is Hummingbird, which it has all the regular stuff, right? But there's this other element of transgression that makes it work for me. And also it makes... But that's like a satisfying HEA. But it makes the wealth also useful and not just like an aside that allows the book to happen in totality. So, But it doesn't change the fact that there is this... Like, God, couldn't she have just like, there's even a version of this where she doesn't agree to marry him and she doesn't give the presentation and then they don't get married. But it's also not this forced courtship. Like she goes back to Spindle Cove and now she knows something different about herself and she's able to have like a more normalized romantic relationship with this person. Right. And maybe that's where they court. They're done courting. I don't know. They're done courting. Yeah, they've been courting on the road. But I do feel like I don't think the means justify the ends, but you shouldn't skip the means because of the bad end so this is a romance for me yeah that feels right with that for the 100th time (laughs) we are telling you to loosen your stays but nick but never your principles oh my god you do listen (laughs) (laughs) perfect in the can Whoa, golly gee. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Womance. Womance is hosted by Isabel. That's me. And Morgan, that's me. Production is by Nick Gravelin. Our webmistress is the incomparable Jane Bonzac. And our illustration and logo were created by Mary Reichman. They're the best. If you'd like to follow, creep, or connect with us on our social media platforms, you can find us at mans underscore woe on Twitter, womance on Instagram, or email at womancemail at gmail.com. You can also hang out on our amazing website at womancepodcast.com. You can support us by using our code to visit our sponsors or go to our Patreon where we are Womance. Womance is officially part of the Frog podcast network discover more podcasts just like our own centering on romance and reading at frolic.media slash podcast 
until next week. Mwah. <laughs>